0: If you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, the passage we're looking at this morning is Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Before we read the text upon which our teaching is based, let us turn to the Lord and in a spirit of depending upon him, acknowledge that we can't even understand his word rightly without his spirit illuminating our mind and our heart. So let's go to him in a time of prayer. Father, we beseech you to give us your spirit that you would guide us into all truth and show us Jesus. Lord, I do pray that we would fall more deeply and passionately and fervently in love with Jesus, that as we confess and as we acknowledge, as we read the truth of your word, we would see what he has done for us and that it would impact our soul. So Father, your word, which is living and active, have your way with us through it. Reveal your presence to us in it. Give us its truth transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 21, says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Friends, this is the word of the Lord, given because God loves you. You may be seated. Let's review a little bit of what we've been doing. We've been studying the Lord's Prayer, and our approach has been to take each petition of the Lord's Prayer. So, our Father in Heaven, Hallowed Be Your Name, focuses on the worship of the Father, acknowledging who He is, kind of the foundation of it all. So that if we're looking at the goal of this series as cultivating our prayer life, it begins with a knowledge of who is God to you. Has he adopted you as as his child? Are you in his kingdom? Is he your father through Jesus Christ? Has he adopted you? So that's the foundation. And then the worship of him, recognizing that we are to hallow his name, his name that is above all names. We're to set it apart, to see it as unique so... The worship of the Father comes first, leading to the kingdom of His Father. We celebrate and cultivate a longing for His kingdom come. We're broken. We mourn over the lack of what we see in our own hearts, in our own lives. You know, kind of like what James 4 said. Turn your laughter to mourning. Do you, are you brokenhearted because you don't see as fully as you would like to? Do you have the desire? By, by the way, that desire, if you have that desire... That is born of God. That's not something you're going to come up with on your own. So if you mourn over the lack of spiritual fervency and passion in your life, that's a good thing. Part of cultivating that prayer life of kingdom come. Then we pray, give us this day our daily bread where our focus is on the provision of the Father. Where he provides for us our temporal blessings. But where we also saw that not only our physical needs are met in Jesus, but ultimately our spiritual needs. We're reconciled to the Father through the real bread of Jesus Christ, the bread of life. This morning, our next petition concerns the grace of the Father. So we go from the worship to the kingdom to the provision to the grace of the Father. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And we see that Jesus as our bread of life who's given to us accomplishes our reconciliation to God, our forgiveness, and then enjoins upon us to be a gracious and forgiving community. It's very important, and I want to say this right at the outset, kind of guard against a misinterpretation, because there are many places we read in the Scripture things like, as we've forgiven our debtors, forgive as the Lord forgives you. And that is not a clause indicating in any way that we earn or merit God's forgiveness. Like God's forgiveness is somehow conditioned upon the quality of our forgiveness. Rather, what it's saying, and this is very important, and I'm going to kind of repeat this, reiterate this throughout the passage. Our living a forgiving lifestyle, our being a gracious community is a primary indication. It is a real, tangible demonstration. It is an evidence, if you would, that we understand that we have been forgiven. So forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Is We're going to forgive our debtors to the degree that we understand how much we have been forgiven. One commentator put it this way said this clause in the prayer is anchored like all the others in the career and announcement of Jesus. As has been said before, the prayer is given so that Jesus' followers can breathe in what he's doing, and so with that breath come a life with his life. The church, who could almost be defined as the people who pray and live the Lord's Prayer, is to model and pioneer the way of life, which is actually the only way of life, because the way of forgiveness. The church, defined as living and praying, cultivating the Lord's Prayer, its values, its petitions, its life, the life of Jesus in us, we are called to model and pioneer the way of life, which is the way of grace, which is the way of forgiveness. In other words, one of the things that Jesus is saying, and we're going to look at it by looking at the story that he tells, an answer to Peter, coming up to him and asking him what is to Peter, and I think to us a very practical question. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is going to teach how believers are to relate to one another in the community. Peter asks Jesus how many times, so he kind of has a paradigm, a model in his mind, and we'll look at that. How many times must I forgive my brother? Notice that in the text. He's talking now about relationships within the family, relationships within the church. How many times should I forgive my brother who commits the same sin, who sins against me? And Jesus is going to teach the absolute necessity, the non-negotiable, no other options of humility and forgiveness within the life of the community. Think about it this way. Whenever and wherever human beings exist together in a fallen world, forgiveness will be a necessity. Because, think about it, because we're selfish. Because we're self-centered. We're turned inward upon ourselves. We hear what somebody says to us, and our, whether you admit it or not, our immediate first thought is, how does this reflect upon me? What is this saying about me? We tend to automatically turn inward upon ourselves, Grace, if there is to be any sort of love, any sort of unity, any sort of harmony, any sort of community within the church, grace better be the DNA of our church. Grace better be the DNA of our life together. Our life together must be characterized by humility, grace, and forgiveness. What do we learn? What does Matthew chapter 18 teach us about forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Two things. And it's Mother's Day. We're not doing a three-point sermon. Only a two-point sermon. Two things. The text teaches us how to understand forgiveness, and the text teaches teaches us how to practice forgiveness. Understanding it, because I think sometimes forgiveness is not what we think it is. I think we have an idea of what forgiveness is, and according to the teaching of Jesus, it may be something radically different than where our minds automatically go. And then understanding it, learning to practice it. All right, let's begin by setting some context. If we were to understand forgiveness, the text begins with Peter's question to Jesus. Verse 21, then Peter comes up to Jesus and he says to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, I want you to think about something. It's real interesting because within the first century Jewish context, the rabbis had a teaching. Basically, they said that there was a consensus that you were required to forgive someone who sinned against you and were seeking forgiveness for the same offense three times. The fourth time, all bets are off. So I want you to think about Peter for a second. He would understand the culture. He would understand what was going on. And so when he comes, he would know that kind of the model, the paradigm for forgiveness was to put a limit on it, to quantify it. And so when he says as many as seven times, think about what Peter's asking here. If the normal thing is three times and then fourth, you're free to do what you want. When he says up to seven times, first of all, what does the number seven represent? That was the biblical number of completeness, of perfection, of fullness, So here's Peter, and he's saying, well, if the usual number is three, I'm going to up the ante, and I'm going to make it the number of completeness, the number of fullness, seven. Not bad, huh, Jesus? I'm upping the ante here. I'm doing okay, pretty good. Look at me, Jesus, up to seven times. Pat me on the back. I'm doing all right. I want some Jesus kudos here. And of course, what does Jesus do? How How does he answer? Of course, Jesus, as always... Confounds the whole situation. He reframes the entire discussion. He throws out all the human categories and limits. And he does so by alluding in his answer up to seven times. He's actually alluding to a text found in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4 it says, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. If I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Now look at what Jesus does. When Jesus says in his answer to Peter, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times, he is creating a formula of limitless forgiveness. Okay, If the first century Judaic formula was up to three times, there was a number, they were quantifying to it. If Lamech was talking revenge and vengeance, if no matter what they had a way, they were quantifying it. I've somehow gotten far enough and I've met the standard. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's throwing out all the categories. He's saying throw out the bookkeeping department altogether. He is saying in the arena Of human relationships, love rules. I want us to think hard about the standard that is found in the scripture. I want us to think hard about this. For example, Paul says to Timothy, when he's passing on the gospel baton in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says the aim of our charge is love. In 1 Corinthians 13, he says, now I will show you the most excellent way. It is not one of the options. He doesn't say there's faith, there's hope, and by the way, there's love. They're all three pretty equal. You need them all. No, he says, the greatest of these. In other words, evaluate your life by the standard of love. And let me push the envelope more. Evaluate your life by the standard of the love of Jesus. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? And as he begins to unfold the essence of forgiveness, helping us to understand forgiveness, in the story it becomes clear that the details Jesus uses represent spiritual realities. He's going to tell the story about a king, and that king represents God the Father. And he's going, in the story, he's going to refer to a debt. As we're going to see, a pretty huge debt. And that represents to the spiritual reality of our debt of sin against God. And one of the things he's doing, the fact that the issue is being framed by Jesus in terms of a debt, is to show us, and he's trying to press upon our hearts, that we have an obvious need. A need for forgiveness. I wonder, let me try, before we kind of dive into the story a little bit, I want to ask you a practical question. And remember, Jesus is telling the story, he's answering Peter's question, so he's speaking to a Christian. The verses I cited is Paul speaking to the churches. So this is not how to become a Christian. This is life in the family. This is life in the community. This is, pra- this is part of what Jesus was saying. Go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Not the deli line of picking and choosing what you'd like to obey. So let me ask you this question. Do you see forgiveness as your greatest need in the Christian life? Functionally. Because if I could throw this out kind of as a proposition, maybe one of the reasons we lack zeal, and we lack fervor, and we lack passion, and we lack obedience in our Christian lives is that if we don't see forgiveness as our biggest need, we don't see ourselves as debtors, as continual debtors, and forgiveness as our biggest need in life, then the fact that we are actually forgiven by God really doesn't matter too much to us. Really not. If we don't see ourselves as that big of a sinner, then the fact that we're forgiven is really not such a big deal. We read verses like, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. And if we don't have that big a need, that verse doesn't really galvanize your heart. But if you have a big need, you read, as far as the east is from the west... So far as ta- has he taken your guilt, your self-centeredness, your selfishness, your being a liar, your being lustful, your being... Pr- and he's removed it from you, never to hold you accountable for it. Your judgment has been paid. Then all of a sudden, what does that do to your heart? Maybe we need to see our need for forgiveness a little bit more. What do you think? Which brings us to the heart of the story. Jesus is getting us to understand forgiveness. And he tells Peter a story. Look with me at verse 23. He says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now I want to ask you a question. If you were sitting down, say you are sitting down at Starbucks or something like that, you're having coffee with a friend, and that friend asks you, what is forgiveness? A one-line thing defining forgiveness. How would you answer them? It's another way of saying, what do we normally think of when we think of what forgiveness is all about? Is it some sort of emotional feeling, a release, a catharsis, where we say we forgive, and then all of a sudden everything's fine, peachy keen, relationships better, no tension, no awkwardness, everything's better, we feel good, let's hug it out, and then go home. Is that what we think? Let's look carefully at the text. And I'm absolutely indebted. I happen to think that the best teaching on the nature of forgiveness comes from Tim Keller. And so I'm indebted to Tim Keller on this for the nature of forgiveness. And he says a couple of things. First, he says we have to remember that according to this text, forgiveness is not primarily an emotion. But it is a set of actions. It is a discipline. It is a commitment. That means right off the bat, you may not feel it. We haven't defined it yet but it is not an emotion it is an action it is a set of disciplines it is a commitment and recognize when we say it's a commitment that means it's a commitment that's ongoing something that we don't arrive to so forgiveness is not a one time thing and all's better forgiveness is a commitment that you continue to make and this comes from recognizing See, recognize what happens. in the, the, te, the king is going to do what? To settle accounts. That means when someone wrongs you, the account has to be settled. That means there is a debt. They have a debt with you, and that debt has to be paid. If we examine the story that Jesus tells, we see there's a king who decides to go and settle his accounts. As he begins his settlement... He happens upon a man, a servant, who owed him 10,000 talents. That man is brought to him. Now, here's the situation. I don't know how many of you read the ESV Bible, but at the bottom of it, it says that this man, 10,000 talents, it says one talent, okay, so we haven't multiplied yet, one talent was 20 years worth of wages. See where I'm going with this? Multiply one year worth of wages times 20 years of wages, and what are you know, 20 times 10,000? What do you get? Maybe 200,000 years of wages. In today's terms, you're talking billions of dollars. And then I, so the king comes to settle, and I love what it says in verse 26. You look down with me at verse 26, and it says, and since he could not pay. Okay? This is where, I'll be honest, it's okay if you read a scripture like that, it's okay to say, you think? Or, duh. And since he could not pay. And the proof of this is the proof that his lack of forgiveness, which we're going to see in the next clause, in the next part of the story, is due to his not understanding what forgiveness is, is he gets on his knees, he implores with the king, have patience with me, and I will pay you back all that I owe. Friends, this is where I say sin causes us to be a liar. There is no way he could pay. This is an incalculable debt. If you think you could pay off your debt to God... I don't know how else to put it, but you're deluded. You cannot pay off your debt to God. That is one of the most crucial past lines in the scripture right there. And since he could not pay. But here's the situation. God's a just God. Justice is still the order of the day. Can God just sweep the debt under the rug? I love to listen when I'm driving home from work often or I'm in the car. You think I do spiritual things all the time. You know what I listen to on the radio? Sports radio. And you know who I'm listening to? My favorite New York City announcer, who's the Yankees announcer, Michael K. Michael K. tells a story out of his childhood where he says his father used to always tell him, kind of when he would do something and come and apologize, Michael K.'s dad would say, sorry doesn't pay for the broken lamp. You know what the message is there? And I think he's stealing a little bit of Christian truth. The message there is that the debt still has to be paid. So if you look at verse 27, here's the definition. Here's understanding what forgiveness is. And about the only part of what I would say feeling or emotion is mentioned in verse 27 because it says the king, the master, out of pity for him. Why did he have pity? Because he knew he couldn't pay. He didn't have the ability to pay. He was powerless. See, if he's not powerless, what he's about to offer him is not mercy. If you can offer something, you don't need mercy. If you can offer one thumbnail, one little bit, anything, you don't need mercy. But see, he says, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. There's the heart of forgiveness. The heart of forgiveness is to cancel the debt. And as Dr. Keller says, he says, here is the heart of what it means to forgive. It is to cancel the debt by absorbing the cost of the debt yourself. You pay the price yourself and you refuse to exact the price out of the person in any way. This is why The heart of what it means, and we'll look at this in the next part of the next part of the sermon, as we also have forgiven our debtors, forgiving others as God in Christ also forgave us. See how did God forgive us? He canceled our debt, and he puts it in these beautiful images, like as far as the east is from the west, or he puts it in an image of he will remember our sins no more. Does this mean God somehow had a memory lapse? He was less than omniscient all of a sudden. See, he didn't just ignore our sin. He didn't sweep our sins under the rug. No, he sends our sins away by Christ paying the penalty for them himself. He cancels that. We're free. We're released. That 10,000 talent plus debt we have, we're released from because Jesus Christ on the cross absorbed it. It went into him. He took it upon himself on the cross. He paid the price. And that's why from the cross he says, It is finished. And the word it is finished literally means paid in full. And friends, when we pray, Forgive us our debts. We are praying we are forgiven by the cost of it being absorbed, being paid for by Christ himself. Which leads us to our next point, how to practice forgiveness. See, as we pray, as we have forgiven our debtors, how do we do this practically? And again, taking our understanding, it's not a catharsis, it's not automatically reconciliation, it's not automatically trust. We do need to remember that the very first thing is to realize that whenever someone wrongs you, there is a debt. There's a price to be paid. That's why we feel, see, all the discomfort, the tension, the awkwardness, the temptation to suppress it, the temptation for vengeance, all those things. We're thinking in our minds, it's very natural. God's just, we're made in his image. We're going to reflect that image, even in our humanity. It's very natural for us to be thinking, here's the debt. We need to remember forgiveness is not primarily a feeling, it is a commitment, it's a discipline. And the commitment is to cancel the debt of the other person by absorbing the cost ourselves. So how do we do this? Dr. Keller, again, I think very, very practically says that what you have to do is when someone wrongs you, you have to take two inventories. Two inventories of ways that you could exact the price, make them pay, that's the first inventory, and secondly, pay the price yourself. So in the first inventory, the inventory of exacting the price, these are things like you could make cutting remarks about them, that's a price. Give them the cold shoulder, refuse to talk to them, refuse to pray for them, maybe gossip about them. Seek to slander them, seek to hurt them in some way. And that doesn't mean physically, that means emotional. Make them feel bad. These are all ways. There is a debt, and you need to remember you're looking to have them pay the price. So what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is a commitment that you will cancel. You release them from the debt. How do you do that? You don't bring the matter up to yourself, to others, to others. to them. And every one of those is your absorb... See, it hurts. It hurts to forgive. Every one of those things, you're absorbing the cost to yourself. See, that is the fulfillment of forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And see, this is exactly what the king does. Out of love for the servant, of which he was under no obligation... He canceled the debt, did not exact payment, canceled the 10,000 talents, let him go free, and thus paid the 10,000 talents himself. And this is exactly what Jesus did for us. And this is exactly what this man didn't get. He didn't get the first part, forgive me my debts, so he didn't practice the second about forgiving his debtors. Because the servant, if you look at the story, the servant now, he's released. He's done. What does he do? He calls one of his servants to himself. And this servant owes us much smaller debt. A denarii is one day's wage. So he owed maybe a little over three months' pay with a hundred denarii. We're talking billions of dollars that he owed versus a few thousand dollars. And what does he do? The servant... Makes the same plea, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything back. But yet, the first servant, in an angry rage, has him thrown into prison. And what happens? Others in the community, rightly distressed by this breakdown, go to the king who responds in verse 32 You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant. Here's the key phrase. Highlight this, memorize this, underline this. Here's the key because this is not earning or meriting, but the key is as I had mercy on you. This means unequivocally your mercy on others is a response is a reflective reaction, is a reflection of your understanding of God's mercy to you. If you're not gracious with others, the principle, it is not work hard, be gracious, it is focus more on the depth of God's mercy to you. The application is look at your debt. Look at your selfishness being forgiven. Look at your self-centeredness. Look at your deceit. Look at your relational sin. See, again, our sin is not just we broke the rule. Oh, we fibbed. We lied one time. Oh, speed limit's 30. I went 35. I sinned. No. The heart of sin is we violated God's kingdom of love by failing to love well. By failing to live according to... To God's kingdom love. The aim of our charge, Paul says to Timothy, is love. And when we fail to do that, we have a debt. And what did God do? In Christ, by Christ absorbing our failure, our rebellion, our wickedness upon himself, he released us. You're free from that debt. The key is, as I had mercy on you. And if you don't understand that, it's then that in anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay off his debt. His 10,000 talents. And then Jesus closes the story saying, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Sobering words. Challenging words. The Father's family. The covenant family that Jesus Christ bought with the price of his own blood. The covenant family that Jesus went to the cross to redeem and restored will be a family of grace. That is the DNA of the family of God. It is not an option. It is non-negotiable. Non-nego- Practicing forgiveness is not an option. And as I said before, this is not a moralistic approach that says this is how we earn or merit God's forgiveness. It is tangible evidence that we understand the gospel. We understand how God deals with us in Christ. In other words, the key, the root, if you would, to practicing forgiveness, to the discipline of renewing ourselves in the spirit of our minds, taking the, doing the practical things I mentioned before, here's the key, here's the root of it. It is that we are to act toward others as God has acted toward us. So here's the proper question for us to ask. This is the question we should be asking ourselves and leaving here with. Am I committed? Because forgiveness and grace is a lifestyle, is a commitment. Am I committed? Do I in my relationships reflect? And am I committed to reflect how God treats and deals with me in Christ. Which means the application is I need to spend a whole lot more time meditating on, feeding on, focusing on how God deals with me and treats me in Christ. Paul had a great commentary, I think, on this, that he spoke to the Ephesians church. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30 He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What beautiful image there. That when Christ saves us, we are sealed. You know what it means to be sealed with something? It's glued. Unbreakable bond. The Holy Spirit makes it so you can't break the bond between you and Jesus. And now Paul is saying, and he's commanding. He's commanding, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Don't make him mourn. Don't make him lament. Don't hurt him. Don't grieve him. And listen to how he says we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And he goes right to human relationships. Because he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. What a great commentary on this petition of the Lord's prayer. Paul expects the church to be kind and tender-hearted to not grieve the holy spirit of God, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If you're not kind and tender-hearted, here's my encouragement to you. Look at how God in Christ forgave you. Was God kind and tender-hearted towards you? What kind of mercy did God show you? Our treatment of others is a reflection and is to reflect how God and Christ treated us. Conduct in the community of the kingdom is patterned after God's treatment of us. And his treatment of us is the treatment of the big-hearted king. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, that you would show us who you are, that you are a big-hearted king, And that we would get to know, that we would meditate on that. Lord, the goal, since the aim of our charge, Paul said, is love. We would get to know the God who is love. That we would get to know this one who has such a huge heart towards us. Who bought us with a price. Who canceled and released us from our debt by absorbing the cost himself. Oh, that we would see and commit to seeing more and more. What it cost you to forgive us. We pray, and we pray that the DNA of Spruce Creek Church would be grace. In Jesus' name, amen.